Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. So as I mentioned, we, we preach this one kind of regularly, um, possibly because it's long been one of my favorite scripture passages. Um, it is one of the few stories in our scriptures that ends us with a positive view of someone whose gender and sexuality are outside of the sort of normative binary um, that we have long accepted as natural. So I've always liked it for that. But, you know, I was prepping for this week, and I went back, and I read this, and it just sat wrong. I hate when that happens. I read it through this time, and it felt like the story was just way too simple. It offered way too easy an interpretation. It fit too neatly into our expectations, and all of these little things started sending little red flags up all around the back of my head, all over the place, and I just went, oh, come on, I like this one. Does it have to, do, does it have to be this one that I... No, yep, it does. Because the story starts like this, right? Philip, prompted by the Holy Spirit, sets out from Jerusalem to Gaza, not really knowing why. Okay, good job, Philip. The text says it was one wilderness road, but in those days there was not one main road from Jerusalem to Gaza out there on the fringes of the parts of the empire that the Romans really cared about, and it wasn't on a main trading route or anything like that. And so Philip actually ended up descending the series of smaller intersecting trails that connected small rural villages to each other throughout southern Judea. In other words, the Holy Spirit sent Philip out into the wilderness. We know this theme in scriptures. This is not a unique passage in that particular sense. Anyway, so Philip's out on the roads, plural please, and somehow he caught up with a chariot. Not quite sure how that happened. That contained a court official to the Ethiopian queen, and that official was reading the book of Isaiah in scroll form but probably pretty similar to the book of Isaiah as it occurs in our Bibles. Probably not in English, though. Just saying. And Philip, seeing this, somehow managing from whatever distance he was from the chariot to recognize the scroll of Isaiah, thanks Holy Spirit, Philip jumped into the chariot and offered to interpret the scriptures to a eunuch who was so delighted that he insisted on being baptized right then and right there. Shorter version, the story goes, you know, when we actually understand that the whole Hebrew Bible is just about Jesus and when even someone like that can get baptized into the way of Christ when they could never have been fully accepted into the Judaism that they were trying to practice, then everything's good. And oh, hey, anti-Semitism, you were definitely one of the red flags in this interpretation. Right there, we have the possibility that maybe we have a problem on our hands and our nice, neat interpretation isn't so nice and isn't so neat. But that's not the only red flag. Dagnabbit, I liked this passage. Let's consider the eunuch, just for a minute. This unnamed character who's only known by his race and gender. That's awkward. 
That's really awkward. We focus a lot harder on this person's being a eunuch than we do on pretty much any other aspect of who they are, which probably shouldn't surprise me considering our unhealthy cultural obsession with assigning meaning to anatomy. It's not a new thing, people. But when it really comes right down to it, what is or what isn't in their pants does not change the status of this person. This person who held the purse strings for one of the most powerful empires in the region. This was the Secretary of the Treasury, the Janet Yellen or the Alexander Hamilton of a tremendously wealthy and powerful nation. So let's take a brief moment, just a little second here, to imagine what would happen if some religious fanatic jumped into the private car of a cabinet secretary driving back to Washington from Christmas or Easter celebrations and how the entourage of that secretary might react to that person. Do we see that there might be a little bit of an issue here? Maybe? More than that, even still. This particular Ethiopian did not become such a powerful official by being stupid. Right? And it seems odd to me to suggest that their wisdom in financial and political matters did not somehow carry over into the ability to read and interpret a text like Isaiah. Hmm. What I think we miss in reading this is that Jewish converts were not at all unknown throughout the Middle East and beyond. And this was partly due to trade with Judea facilitated by Roman roads, but it was also very much due to the invasion and occupation of Judea in general, Jerusalem in particular. By first Assyria and then Babylon and then Rome, which is where we are now. And this sent so many people from Judea into more or less explicit exile and created a Jewish diaspora which accepted people into the faith. And it was a faith in the diaspora that relied way more heavily on Torah study, the rabbinic system more in line with how we understand modern Judaism, than on temple worship and practices, because it was a long way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. You didn't go to the temple for every high holy day because you couldn't. But you could always, always study the scriptures. And the odds are very poor that this particular wealthy, powerful, educated Ethiopian had not had as part of their conversion a lot of interaction with rabbis and a lot of time in synagogues and a lot of exposure to the law and the prophets like Isaiah. Indeed, these were the parts of Judaism that were accessible to this particular person since the first century Judeans shared at least this one particular cultural obsession with us. And the need for nature, especially in their case, to fit neatly into binary categories. In other words, the eunuch was not exactly welcome in the temple. So, not only do we now have Philip jumping into the chariot of a powerful person, but we have him immediately questioning that person's ability to interpret and understand what they were reading. 
Are you twitchy yet? Because I'm a little twitchy at this point. Does this sound like something that, you know, we would ask our children, you know, grow up so that you can jump into someone else's car and immediately question their intelligence? Boys, don't. We have Philip making assumptions about the Ethiopian, despite the high likelihood that they were deeply familiar with the texts. And these assumptions were based on what? Their ethnicity? Their gender? Oh, Philip, I think you missed a lesson back there with Jesus somewhere. Do you see what I mean? By this story not quite sitting right all of a sudden? This story is not suddenly as neat as we want it to be. Why did we ever think it was a neat, simple story in the first place? Well, in looking through that question, I decided maybe it would help to turn the whole thing around. So follow me in the exercise that I did for myself. Close your eyes. And imagine, if you will, that the roles are reversed. Imagine that the Ethiopian is the disciple of Jesus, the one who was in Jerusalem for the crucifixion, the one who had followed Jesus from the very beginning, the one who knew the story intimately because they had been there the whole time. Imagine that Philip had not left everything to follow Jesus, but was instead, let's just say, a well-off Galilean merchant, just for lack of a better idea. Imagine the Holy Spirit had sent this Ethiopian out into the wilderness, and upon seeing Philip in Philip's chariot, reading the scroll of Isaiah, had jumped in beside him to ask him if he understood it. Think about this for a second. And maybe it would help if I create an image that's a little bit closer to home for us. Imagine, if you will, that a white businessman is being driven across a rural area in his convertible, and that a black person, and gender non-conforming black man, black person, suddenly jumps into the back seat beside him and asks him if he understands what he's reading. How's that gonna end, I ask you? Doesn't sit the same way as our story, does it? That just gives us the heebie-jeebies right from the get-go. Didn't need me breaking the whole thing apart for that to be weird. Because even in this particular crowd... Even among progressive folk, the deep cultural instincts of folks raised on movies and TV and literature that we now call classic, we all know, whether or not we like it, that this is not the way it's supposed to work. The black person, the non-binary person, the poor person does not simply jump into the space of the privileged person and question their abilities and their intelligence. That is not the correct way for the narrative to play out. It is backwards, because there is a correct way for that narrative to play out. And it would certainly not end with the privileged person graciously listening to the expoundings of the uninvited stranger, in the way that we are expected to believe this happened. The story of Philip and the Ethiopian seems, to our ways of understanding, to be a story about the conversion of someone who is totally other by someone we are primed to see as the obvious hero. And though Philip wasn't white, none of the disciples were, Jesus was not white, get it all out of your heads, all of that medieval art just erased by thank you. 
Philip functions in the role of what we would now consider a white person in this story, as the person who is expected to have authority and to take up space without being challenged in that, especially opposite someone whom our culture has taught us for centuries to view as inferior, as in need of education and civilization and salvation. All the red flags! The Holy Spirit drives Philip out into the wilderness, into the place where humanity and divinity can meet, where holiness resides away from the distraction and busyness of our world. And we have been taught that the Holy Spirit sent Philip out to be a teacher, but that's usually not what happens in the wilderness. Maybe we should ask ourselves why the Holy Spirit did this, if not to teach Philip and to put the gospel into practice before him. Because the Spirit puts him in the path of one who is as unlike him as he believes possible, and yet one who knows intimately the cruelty of empire the cruelty of the powers of this world in their fullest dominance. This one knows the cruelty of the empire that used the Ethiopian's body to ensure his loyalty to that very empire. As intimately as Philip knows the cruelty of an empire that would kill his teacher and threaten his life. Between these two, both marked by the powers of this world, the Spirit invites connection and community, the possibility of living into the gospel that Philip so glibly preaches. Because the Ethiopian's response to Philip's impertinent question is that interpretation comes through guidance and conversation. In other words, the Ethiopian has been well-trained by the rabbis because this is the sort of response that they give. And this is the sort of response that we would expect from Jesus, isn't it? The Ethiopian seems to understand what Philip hasn't fully taken to heart, perhaps because Philip has merely been proximate to the violence of empire. He was witness to the crucifixion and hid from its fallout. Well, the Ethiopian knows intimately what it is actually like to be crucified. What it is like to have that violence inhabit his own flesh. What it is like to stand outside of the gender binary, not because it reflects his inherent, their inherent identity, but because the empire is so jealous of their loyalty, and would rather use a body for its own empire purposes than to allow it to exist in freedom and self-determination. I don't know a better definition of crucifixion than that one. The Ethiopian embodies the gospel even as Philip preaches it, and the moment becomes one not of the imbalanced power of education and civilization and salvation, that we are used to reading within this text, becomes a moment, rather, of mutuality between two people who seem so totally opposite and where we would expect there to be a differential of power. We are reminded in this wilderness moment that it is in the reading of these texts in community, as equals, 
It is in the exploration of the gospel with the gathered people that the voice of God begins to come through. For when we come together, especially in unlikely communities like theirs, we can begin to push beyond the easy interpretations. We can begin to bear witness to the gospel as it is lived in actual, breathing bodies, even now. And we can learn to hear a God who doesn't speak in our voice, our individual voices. We can learn to hear a God who is bigger and truer than any one of us ever could be. How can any of us understand unless we are guided into ways that question our individual assumptions about who has power and status, about who has the right to take up space, about who is being converted and who is being saved? How can any of us understand unless we become community in ways that reveal the scars that the world leaves upon us? in ways that build trust and vulnerability, in ways that shift our theology and stretch us to be more expansive than we had believed we could be in the presence of a God who is bigger than any one of us. The Holy Spirit still calls us into wilderness places. This isn't something we left behind in the first century, you know. And we would do well to remember that even Jesus was called to the wilderness to learn and not to teach. The Holy Spirit still nudges us toward those who seem so terribly other, so frighteningly different. And we find ourselves wanting to educate and civilize and save because that is what the world tells us we are to do. That is the role we see ourselves in. That is the role we have been given by every cultural influence for hundreds of years. But it is not the call of the Spirit who invites us deeper to the connections of our brokenness, to the healing that comes in vulnerable community, to the growth that arrives when we learn to hear and see and know a God who is more than the words that we've been used to hearing, more than the traditions that have long been our comfort, more than the theologies that people who look like us have woven around us so closely that we mistake the theology for God. We know the presence of the holy. It's right here. Look around us. We know the presence of the holy because we have sat where Philip sat. We have sat where the Ethiopian sat. And we have come together in embodied reality an intellectual understanding to create something bigger. We know the presence of the holy when the stories that once fit neatly into our way of being become uncomfortable and awkward. We know the presence of the holy when the hymns that we sang loudly and happily as children need editing to fit our adult understandings. We know the presence of the holy when we acknowledge that the growth of the church will change us. It won't just change the people we invite in. It will change us. It will push us. It will cause us to rethink who may be baptized, who may come to the table, who is a member, who is a leader, who helps us to hear the presence of our God right here and right now. 
we know the presence of the holy calling us to be, not as the world wishes, but as God understands us. And to create together the space for openness and growth, for the wisdom that makes us uncomfortable on a regular basis, but which calls us still into a world in which empire does not have all of the power, does not have the final word. The holy that exists here and now calls us into a world without empire, into the life that the world's violence cannot harm, and into the dream of God's kingdom here and now. And the promises of resurrection right before our very eyes. Thanks be to God. Amen.